This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Reeves, there, something. It's just after four o'clock. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Matt Wade from the Star Observer joins us. We also chat with Jude Munro from the Pride Centre, and later we hear from longtime HIV survivor David Menadju. But we do have Matt Wade from Star Observer in the studio. Welcome to 3CR. Yeah, hi, James. Thanks so much for inviting me. This is my first time at 3CR, so it's, it's very special. And on, during Radiothon as well. Indeed, people can go to our Twitter account, Facebook, and uh, see our Give Now page because we've got a thousand bucks to raise, and the station's got to raise two hundred and fifty thousand to keep us on air. Now, speaking of things continuing, you are the editor yes. in chief of the Star Observer. A few weeks ago, it was announced the publication had gone into voluntary administration. Will it fold? Uh, I actually, I don't, I don't believe so. Um, at the moment, and I'm not trying to just be like naively optimistic. Um, at the moment, um, the administrator who's essentially in control of the publication, their main goal is to sell it to somebody so that they can obviously pay out any outstanding debts we've got, we had. Um, and I believe they've shortlisted, people have started to bid on the business. Um, so they've shortlisted, I think maybe three candidates. Um, and then over the next week or so, they'll decide who will be the, the lucky winner. Um, and then, Based on who is the successful bidder, um, they'll decide what they want to do with the publication. So they may want to keep it going exactly as it is. They may want to do something different. I guess so it's, we're in a bit of limbo at the moment, but I'm confident that it will survive because there have been there has been quite a lot of interest in terms of bidders and yeah. Anyone we know? Uh, I can't say. <laughs> I knew you couldn't. Yeah. I thought I'd try though. I don't know the details. I kind of I know roughly kind of some of the interested parties, but uh, and, but I'm not sure like what their intentions are. So. Um, hopefully in the next week or so, um, myself and hopefully the rest of the team who are kind of also wondering what's going to be happening, um, we'll get an idea of, um, A, who maybe the front runner is or who might end up getting it, um, and B, what they're going to do with it. Of course, the paper has a strong community activism history. You are the longest running LGBTIQ publication, news publication in the country, mm-hmm. sprung up out of, you know, all the craziness of the mm-hmm. first Mardi Gras. Uh, for many years, Star Observer had an editorial board. Are you worried that it's ed- editorial integrity or, or focus may change with a new buyer? Look, I hope not. Um, again, I can't speak for the people that are interested in purchasing the business, but I think based on the re- feedback that I've gotten since we found out about the administration, um, people in the community and outside of the community have been so supportive and have reached out and said, look, what can we do to make sure that A, I know I keep listing things in letters, A, that the publication persists and keeps going, but also that we can keep it as it is. So I'm confident that whoever ultimately is successful will want to keep it the way that it has been going, um, in the sense that um, 
it's a news publication and they want it to continue to be, be like that. I mean, whether or not they want to alter the way it's formatted, like in terms of like at, the, at, at present or up until now, we've had like a monthly magazine, online news presence. They might want to shift that slightly. I'm not sure. But um, I'm hoping that they'll at least want it to survive. I, of course, worked for uh, Brother Sister and Melbourne Star Observer when Satellite Media folded uh, almost 20 years ago now, and it was devastating for staff. Mm. How are staff at Star Observer holding up? Yeah, I mean, I kept in touch with most of the team over the last couple of weeks, and we've just been kind of touching base to see how everyone's going. It is really devastating. I actually wrote a piece, I think, the day after I found out about the administration talking about, like, what queer community media has meant to me, and specifically the Star Observer. And I know that that sentiment is shared by everyone else in the team as well. You know, at the end of the day, um, none of us work at the Star Observer because we want to be drowning in money. We do it because we're genuinely passionate about the community and we want to be a part of it, report on the news that other outlets, I should say mainstream outlets, um, don't report on. So um, I guess the news of its potential precarious position, well, it isn't a precarious position right now, but news of it it being in limbo, so to speak. um, Yeah, I know it's hit the team pretty hard because everyone really is passionate about the Star Observer as a publication and as a service for the community. So um, I guess we're all just waiting at the moment to see what happens in the next week or so. So what's the staffing structure there like at the moment? Some people have been let go. Some people are still there. Like, what's happening? The, uh, so basically what's been happening, I guess, while the administrator has been in control is that I've been kept on at the moment to kind of keep the wheels turning until somebody buys the business. Um, but the rest of the staff at the moment aren't working. So um, I guess it'll be dependent on who is successful in acquiring the business, what they want to do, whether they want to retain the staff that was previously working there or whether they want new people, um, I'm not sure. That must be very weird. I'm surprised they haven't kept some advertising people on because, I mean, that's what keeps the wheels going. Along with editorial, of these publications, you need to sell ads to, to keep publishing. So having them gone, that's a bit odd. And, uh, and to piggyback off of that as well, James, uh, the, in terms of advertising, um, up until now, like our exclusive source of revenue has been through advertising dollars you know we, we don't we're not for profit we don't get government funding so all the money that we make is through advertising in print and advertising online um and i think um and again i, I mean it's not my short decision but whoever is successful in getting the business will probably have to to avoid the situation happening again start to look at new revenue streams i'm not a sales or money person like i'm editorial but i do think that um yeah i when someone does take over in the short in the near future um i think that It'll have to be they'll have to be looking at new ways of revenue beyond just advertising dollars because obviously we know not even just in queer media but in the mainstream media too like we see people getting laid off at News Corp in different places like it's not super lucrative so I think um, hopefully whoever takes over can try to channel some new money from some new different channels to yeah keep it thriving not just kind of you know pacing along surviving. And uh, paper is dying. Do you actually still publish? I mean, I I tend to just read your publication offline. (laughs) You can still get copies? You can. And it's the thing, I mean, um, the majority of our audience is digital. So most of the people that read our content, they read it online. However, um, I mean, at least while I've been been at Star Observer for four years, um, and over that time we've been publishing a monthly magazine. So um, it's distributed for free, which, again, we finance through our advertising dollars. and yeah, it's distributed around the country, so people can still pick up the issue. I mean, the last issue we printed was just before we went into administration, which should still be out on the streets. But um, yeah, so, we've been, so we still publish a, actually a print thing. And it's like you said, um, you know, print media is very precarious. So um, it's been incredible that, I mean, now it's 40 years that we've still managed to keep some sort of physical print publication out there. Because I think for queer people and LGBT, the LGBTI community, 
it means it means more to them to have something physical and tangible than it would to an everyday person picking up the age or the herald sun like i think i mean i've heard stories from people from 40 years ago 30 years ago and even in the last 10 years who say that you know having something to pick up every month and take home and have for themselves to as a kind of gateway into the community or a, an educational publication that's informing them of like different people's stories and issues that are affecting them it, it really means a lot to them and i i think it's like it's a different kind of uh, uh what's the word like i think it means a bit it means more to somebody from the community to pick up a community paper than it would to just the everyday person picking up a newspaper so it's while, a link to community it's yeah, an that's, attachment. yeah and it's something mm. tangible to, to yeah. show your connection uh i mean when i worked for the queer press mm. uh people's Copies stayed on the coffee table for a lot longer than, you know, say the age would. Well, that's it. And that thing is like people will still approach me um, when I'm out um, at an event or some sort of community thing um, and say, oh, you know, I've got this issue from a year ago or from a year and a half ago and I still have it because it had this piece about you know, this trans woman who had never come out to her family. It was like, you know, do you know what I mean? That, that, that certain stories speak to them, obviously, because it, it they, they see themselves reflected in the pages. So more than something, and I shouldn't say disposable, but more than something like the age where, you know, you want to find out the news quickly and then move on to the next, what's what's next. Um, community news and community stories um, are a bit more timeless because it's, it's, it's a snapshot of our history. And I guess, you know, as we know, this year's Stonewall's 50th, last year's Mardi Gras 40th. Our history is really important, so, yeah. And for you as a journalist as well, it would be, you know, the gateway, if you like, the main source of expression of your connection to the community as well. So you must be, you know, working working your butt off to, to ensure that, you know, hopefully the publication will keep going. I'm mm. sensing this problem has happened uh, financially because of paper and productions of paper and the mm. cost of that. Is that the source, the root of this problem, do you think, financially for Star Observer? Yeah, I think that... Um... The thing is, like, it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I think primarily, um, I mean, there are people that have advertised with us that still owe us debts, for example, right? But I think the debts that we owed or the, what we needed to pay off for our for our printing fees, which was in relation to the magazine, um, were too much. So we were, because we still had money that wasn't, we didn't have enough cash flow that we could keep paying that off at, at the rate that it was happening. So we had to unfortunately come to that resolution, or the, the board did, I should say. Um, but yeah, it was, it was actually, it was around print publication and the magazine. So, um, that's why I'm hoping, um, look going forward, whoever does ultimately acquire the business. Yeah. tries to look at all the new ways and fresh ways of also gaining revenue. I know that other community places, whether it's 3CR or join 94.9, you know, they're very skilled in finding new ways, whether it's through Radiothon or something like that. So perhaps, yeah, Star Observer could look at new models as well. So who is on the Star Observer's board? Uh, so our chairman, Sebastian Rice, who is based in Sydney, he's kind of at the helm. Well, he's at the helm. Um, and then we've got a mix of other people um, primarily based in Sydney um, from all different sectors. So from the corporate sector, the community sector. Um, I, ba- being based in Melbourne, I didn't get to meet with them very regularly. So generally they would meet in Sydney and the team would meet them up in Sydney. Um, but yeah, it's just a mix of people. Sebastian's at the helm, though. So that's the person I've obviously had the closest relationship with. You've been there for a number of years now. What's the most amazing story that you have worked on at Star Observer? Oh, wow. Jeez, that's a good one. Um, one that was really good, and I don't know why. I, I guess this just comes to mind when I'm trying to think of something that really made me feel great about covering it was when um, uh, Indigenous people were going to be leading Melbourne's Midsummer Pride March for the very first time because previously they hadn't. Um, and so I spoke to a few people um, that were going to be part of that contingent about what it meant to 
not only be able to walk down Fitzroy Street in St Kilda holding the Indigenous flag and holding the rainbow flag, but um, what it meant uh, to be at the front of that parade, to actually be recognised first before any of the other groups. Um, and I remember we I met up with them out one day. We spent a few hours together. I interviewed them all. We took we did a photo shoot. It was really fun. Um, and to me, that's, that is... That signifies why I was a part of the publication in the first place, because for me, I just love the idea that when we cover somebody's story or an issue in the community and somebody else picks up the magazine or looks online and reads it themselves and then feels connected, like you said, connected to the community or just sees himself reflected in that piece and feels a bit more of a sense of belonging. Um, it really, it means the world. Like that's the reason why I got into the Star Observer in the first place. So that was, that's one example. What about the toughest story you've written? Oh, um... A good one. I don't think, well, it was a bit tough, I suppose, but um, in 2016, uh, during the midst of the safe schools debacle, when, you know, there was debate from, you know, the conservative side saying we shouldn't do this, and they were kind of citing all this, you know, illogical stuff that was going to happen, which wasn't actually going to happen if safe schools weren't implemented in schools. Um, there was a petition that was sent to Parliament um, signed by a number of Chinese Australian families. Well, that's what it was, that's what the petition said. Um, and I went along because I wanted to cover it, um, and I wanted to interview some of the people that had written the petition, but unfortunately, I mean, I was aware that if they were aware I was coming from a gay publication, they probably wouldn't speak to me. So when I went up and spoke to them, I'm like, oh, hi, um, I'm wondering if I get some comments, and they're like, oh, where, where are you reporting for? And I said the Star Observer, I didn't lie, I should clarify that. <laughs> um, and they kind of like did this kind of back and forth where they weren't really sure if I could comments or not, and they said no. Um, but then somebody, thankfully, who overheard me, was around the corner, was like, oh, yeah, I'll try to whatever. And so I ended up getting some good ones, which was good. Because the thing is, it, it's easy to perceive uh, queer media or people that are working in the queer media as kind of being as in, in some sort of bubble. And to a sense, in some instances, we are. Um, but it's important that we're also speaking with people that maybe don't necessarily agree with what the community is about. Because even on the most basic level, it kind of helps to highlight to the readers, this is you know, why that might not necessarily be the right way of thinking. So I don't know if I'm making sense really, but I guess we obviously share the stories and the the views and the values and the voices of people in the community across a broad, diverse range of, you know, across the spectrum. But at, at different times I've had the opportunity to speak to people that are not necessarily friends of our community. And that's also been, that's been challenging, but been tough, but important, I think as well, because then I guess we're also able to show why those views, well, in my opinion, at least are quite archaic and it's nice to kind of have that balance. But yeah. What about the story where there was editorial debate and you felt, should I publish this? Mm. There have been a few instances, like, um, and they usually have been when it's been some sort of negative story, but from within the community, so not from necessarily... It's, it's easy to write something about a homophobe who's done something bad in the community. Like, that's very easy. <laughs> um, but I guess when something happens within the community that's not as great, um, it's a bit of a moral dilemma in a sense because you're not really totally. sure that you should cover it. So... Um, I'm trying to think of an example that might top of my head. I mean, a recent one, which was last year, I know that Joy uh, was in a bit of strife for a little while because there were some volunteers that were unhappy with the way that things were running and they were trying to organise like a special general meeting to overthrow the people that were in charge. And it was all very dramatic. Um, but at the time, the mainstream press reported on that story um, in a very, in my opinion, opinion biased way. So it was kind of very much, it very it didn't feel balanced whatsoever. And so I felt compelled at the time to write on it because I thought if we can't cover the community story accurately, then the only journal of record about this piece and about what's happening right now is going to look very much like A, B and C are in the wrong and they've done the wrong thing. So I spoke to people on both sides and I covered it as diplomatically and balancedly and, and as balanced as I could. And I think that's, uh, that was, that was, yeah, that was a good, that was a bit of a debate in the team, but yeah. 
Matt Wade, great chatting with you. Uh, I hope you find a buyer for the Star Observer, and I love your community zest, and I hope you keep <laughs> writing because it's wonderful. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me on here. I really, really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. 18 after four, you are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Dolly Parton. <laughs> Parton there, Peace Train, 22 after 4, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Jude Munro is the chairperson of the Victorian Pride Centre, and Jude joins me on the line. Jude, welcome to 3CR. Hi, James. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us from sunny Brisbane today. Well, it's actually a bit overcast. Oh. I've just uh, flown in for the, for the long weekend and catch up with some long-lost friends, and it'll be uh, lovely seeing all of them, but it's actually not... Uh, sunny Brisbane at all today. Of course, you're the chairperson of the wonderful Pride Centre, which is underway. How are plans going? How are they progressing? Well, if um, anyone goes on to our website or onto the Facebook page, there's actually a little video there. I must say, I look awfully like Sharon Magda Sabansky on <laughs> in the uh, in the video. But James, I'm there, and I'm with the project manager Jason, and also Gemma Bates, our project manager, on the client side. And just showing over the actual site, it's quite an interesting little one-minute uh, snippet. It's showing now that demolition of the Munro's restaurant is completed, which is fantastic. And we've also got piling going on with over 20 of the 120 perimeter piles. Uh, So these are about four or five metre deep, about half a metre across concrete piles that then are part of the support for the overall structure. Wow, so that must really make you feel like things are moving. Oh, yeah. So we've had partial excavation, the piling happening, and then there'll be further excavation to take it down to the bottom of the pile so that then the uh, basement can be laid. So what organisations and services can we expect at the Pride Centre when it's completed? So Thorn Harbour Health with a clinical and counselling and other services, uh, Joy Radio Station and also Switchboard, Melbourne Queer Film Festival, uh, Minus 18, Australian Lesbian and Gay Archive. We're also expecting to have a legal triage service and maybe um, other services and organisations such as Equality Australia. So a great number of organisations arranging from health and community services through to more arts and culture based services. Of course the Labor Party committed $20 million towards the Pride Centre if it was elected. Uh, uh, has ten, the, $10 million. $10 right? million, I beg your pardon. Has the Coalition made any musings that they might give you some money? And what hardship, if any, has the absence of the ALP's money perhaps caused your plans? Well, I'd say what we're in a situation is we have our financing pretty much organised, but that's not the same as the funds. So we are committed to $20.5 million in loan funding and everything's got to go right for us. So we're seeking further donations and we're also obviously getting in those 
commercial tenancies that will be part of the basis of the funding and ongoing sustainability of the centre. Are you are you seeking are you seeking meetings perhaps with the Morrison government to see if they may be able to to make a contribution financially? We will be making approaches to a range of players. Let me put it that way. Kelly O'Dwyer was fantastic when uh, she was a minister in the Federal Coalition. Uh, She was very supportive and she pushed uh, in Federal Cabinet for us to get uh, what's called DGR status so that we could get tax-deductible donations made to us. So um, she's been uh, tremendously supportive and we're hoping that um, we can uh, get some more support from the coalition or indeed back to the state government. The state has been very, very good to us with a $15 million initial grant and now a $10 million loan, um, and um, I'm hopeful that there might be some more there as well. Should members of the LGBTIQ community be lobbying their local coalition MPs and senators to perhaps have a change of heart? I think so. I think Australia needs to be an accepting and tolerant community. We saw that very much during the marriage equality discussion and debate, um, that there was, once that that vote came through, it was gave us all in our community an overwhelming a sense of support from the community. But we can't afford to have Um, hate politics undermine us as Australians and I think lobbying efforts that talk about the importance of diversity and inclusiveness in Australia is really something that the LGBTIQ community need to continue to do particularly when we get into the religious freedom discussion over the course of this coming year. What should ALP and Greens MPs be doing? Would you encourage them to lobby on your behalf and perhaps ask some questions in Federal Parliament? We'll be doing whatever we can to ensure that the Pride Centre is fully funded and we'll be doing our bit uh, within the LGBTIQ community. We've got, the Pride Centre's got about 10 different fundraising strategies, James, including a marvellous Bank Australia arrangement and uh, someone I was talking to a guy by the name of Dave yesterday was saying that he and his husband have just taken out a loan and uh, 0.4% of the value of that loan will be going um, to the prize centre. So he was saying what a good rate that was and we have what's called an affinity relationship with Bank Australia. So if people nominate themselves when they're going for a home loan or switch into a home loan with Bank Australia, that's the arrangement that the Pride Centre gets, uh, that if the Pride Centre is nominated by the person going for the home loan. And that is really, from our perspective, um, it's, uh, it's money for damn, really. It's just a tremendous arrangement. We have the Founders Fund and a few people have put up um, for units of $25,000 to support it. Mayor Steve Stephanopoulos from uh, Stonington Council is organising a gala for us, a gala ball, in late October and the Pride Centre staff and ourselves on the board are supporting the organising of that. So we're doing a whole heap of things to try and 
and get the funds to support the build. But as I said, the finances are organised for less, but it's the funding behind it and we'll be using every effort we possibly can to be pushing, getting funding and donations into the Pride Centre. I know the Pride Centre has been working hard at addressing matters for the trans and gender diverse communities uh, to ensure the Pride Centre is inclusive. And I know you're listening and I know you're acting. Uh, What can you tell our trans and gender diverse listeners about those plans and where they're at to ensure it's a safe, inclusive space for for them? Uh, So we will be having um, a lot of safe spaces in in the Pride Centre health and wellness areas, areas for reflection. There'll be meeting rooms, uh, there'll be services. Uh, Equinox will be there and there's um, other announcements that will come in due course, I hope, in relation to trans and gender diverse people and organisations in the Pride Centre. Of course, you've been a huge supporter of the community and an activist since the 1970s. You've seen incredible change. Did you ever oh. think that in 2019, A, we would have had you know, marriage equality a couple of years ago and B, we'd almost have a pride centre up and running? <laughs> well, it'd be my, my wildest of ideas and dreams back then when we, uh, when we started Gay Liberation in 1972. So they were heady days back then and... There are many forces of life, but there's also the forces of darkness, unfortunately, that are around, and it's up to us to be shining this bright light on inclusiveness and making sure that every member of our community feels loved and supported and that no one is left behind. Jude Munro, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. We're lucky to have you and keep up the great work. Thanks so much, and thanks for your support, Jane. I look around. Simon and Garfunkel there, hazy shade of winner, 25 to 5, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Wednesday, June 5, was HIV Survivors Day, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with David Menju, who's been living with HIV since the 1980s. David, what was the HIV AIDS epidemic like at the time you were diagnosed in the 80s? Well, it was very uncertain because uh, in 1984... Uh, we'd only just started to uh, see deaths. I mean, in America and uh, Europe and so forth, they had had uh, some deaths from AIDS, although they weren't quite sure what was causing it at that stage. So very early days, it wasn't the level of uh, uh, mortality and grief, of course, that uh, as the 80s unfolded, we had to live with. And what kind of community organising was happening uh, in the 80s when the epidemic was first emerging? The AIDS Council in Victoria started uh, in 1983 and I I remember initially they didn't have anyone to look after but it was basically to support and look after people with HIV but also the prevention uh, message was going to be the main work that they did for a long time until the burden of caring for people became quite high and they had to uh, attract a lot of volunteers and get government help to uh, 
uh, you know, help with the nursing side of things. What was the mood in the community like in the 80s when people started getting sick? Oh, very scared. A, a lot of people, uh, and a lot, a lot of it was just uncertain how it was transmitted. Very early on, people were saying it was people who sniffed amyl nitrate who were at risk, which of course is totally wrong. And it wasn't really realised it was sexually transmitted until oh, 1982, 83. And so, you know, it was very early days. And so a lot of people thought, oh, it's not going to affect us. It's going to, it's happening in America. And, and of course, people were HIV positive in our community. And uh, I didn't realise that or we didn't actually know what was causing them to become sick until they put a name on it. And I can't remember when HIV was actually called that. I think it was initially called human T-cell leukaemia. Human T-cell leukaemia virus, I think, because that's what I was diagnosed with. I wasn't diagnosed with HIV because that test didn't actually come in until 1985. So, you know, people think, oh, shock horror, the whole thing was... But we were so uncertain and we didn't know really what was going on until scientists in America in particular, a man called Robert Gallo and others discovered uh, HIV and said, look, it's sexually transmitted, injecting drug use and mother to baby. So once we sort of sorted that out, we knew how to prevent it. What was it like for you at the time when you got that diagnosis, considering all the fear and uncertainty in the community? I, I... I suppose I was taken aback, needless to say. You know, I had a good job and I was quite healthy and when they did all my T-cells, you know, I was close enough to 1,000, which is very healthy. So I wasn't overly concerned because my doctor said, and this proved to be wrong, he said, well, we think most people won't get AIDS. You'll you'll, uh, end up... uh, One in ten people will actually develop the illness. The rest of you will manage to keep it at bay, which was wrong so for a while I lived in kind of this fool's paradise where I thought I was going to be fine and I wasn't going to get sick but you know as the 80s unfolded and my friends started to get sick I thought geez how can I not eventually get sick which of course did actually happen in 1989. Tell us about the peer support movement for people living with HIV AIDS and also the empowerment movement and how that evolved. Yes it was very big early on in America and of course in Europe too. Uh, it didn't happen here until a little bit later, like the late 80s. 1988 was when uh, we first had our meeting to set up a people living with HIV group in Victoria, in Melbourne. Um, and that was. Uh, uh, Basically, uh, in response to, you know, the ACT UP and a whole range of activist groups saying people with HIV should have a voice in this. And before that, people were too scared to say anything. They didn't want to be identified. They thought they might lose their jobs, their family would uh, reject them or whatever. You know, it was a, a terribly... Uh, scary thing for the broader society and people were being rejected right, left and centre. It was a horrible time in terms of stigma. You know, just to say you're HIV positive was a very brave thing to do. And uh, so we needed a group. We needed people around us who could sort, you know, support us uh, 
uh, you know, safety in numbers to some degree. And so 1988 was when we really started the people living with HIV AIDS, as you say, peer support model. You mentioned ACT UP. Tell us about their activities and what they were like in the 80s and 90s, especially their militancy. Look, they were a lot of uh, allies and, of course, a lot of positive people too who said, we've got to do something. Governments have to provide uh, research and get treatments happening. They need to support the AIDS Council and the the care work that's needed. And it's a government health crisis. You can't just turn your back on it and say, leave it to the community, which is what they were doing, really, right up until the mid-'80s. It needed that kind of level of community street protests and politicians being mocked whether they liked it or not it had to happen we had to tell politicians this is a serious problem you need to treat uh, this uh, epidemic in different ways than you have in the past you need to respect the gay and lesbian community which of course we'd only got uh, the gay uh, we'd only had it was only legal to be gay uh, in terms of the victorian law from 1981 and so we were sort of a burgeoning community and we didn't have resources, we didn't have the sort of even the, what you might call the, the credence in the community and until AIDS came along and forced a whole lot of these issues to be discussed more broadly in the press and in, in community in general. Of course, ACT UP did some great direct actions. And I remember once uh, they were at Parliament House in Canberra and one activist uh, famously jumped onto the floor of Parliament when, right. when Bob Hawke and Brian yeah. Howe, I think, yeah. were, were yeah. you know, standing. That must have had an incredible impact on the, on the community insofar as people saying, yeah. we're here, we're not going away, yeah. we demand that you do these things to yeah. help us in this epidemic. And the same thing, uh, Maureen Lister was highly embarrassed I can't remember if it was in Parliament or Parliament steps and she cried about it because she knew uh, you know that that we were right and she was the health minister at the time of the Victorian government so those sort of uh, not that I'm saying we James I wasn't there of course <laughs> no one wanted to admit they were there because some of the stuff sort of bordered on being illegal I suppose but um yeah, yeah, I think there was this compassion in the community. People realised what was being done was necessary and, you know, it did raise uh, a lot of consciousness in the community. Some people hated us because, you know, I suppose it's sometimes personal property might have not been destroyed, but, you know, people might have crossed a few barriers they shouldn't have, such as jumping down on the floor of Parliament. Which and the floral clock. And the floral clock, you're right, you've got a good memory, James. Yes, that's right, the floral clock was destroyed and there was such an outcry. The press was sort of, how dare these vandals attack the floral clock? And some of the politicians reacted badly as if, you know, this was an institution or something, when, of course, the flowers... uh, From my understanding, the people who did it had found out from the gardeners that it was going to be replaced the following day anyway. It was not a big deal, but, you know, it's amazing how you can have this confected outrage about things like that sometimes. You mentioned Maureen Lister, who was Health Minister in Victoria in the Kerner government in the in the 90s, crying on the steps of Parliament House. I think that was over a uh, debate about the closure of Fairfield Hospital. Eventually, right. of course, 
Kennett did close that hospital, uh, which provided great care to people with HIV AIDS. Do you think that closure was the right decision in retrospect? Many people would say no, really. At the time, I wasn't. I was very much... You know, Maureen gave in at that time and she kept Fairfield open. So, you know, that was successful advocacy and it gave people a little bit better uh, conditions for a couple of years because Fairfield was 50% of the patient loads was people with HIV and we were looked at. We were given royal treatment. It was beautiful. We had rooms to ourselves. We had very experienced staff in infectious diseases. It was stigma-free environment, really, and it was sort of like our own little world away, away from the rest of the world out there at Fairfield. So, look... You know, as long as a couple of extra years, a lot of people would say was very grateful for it. A lot of people felt very grateful for that. But in the long term, I think being at the Alfreds, uh, you know, been necessary. We've had the resources of a large hospital. We've we managed to get Fairfield House, which is the continuing care unit, uh, set up there. That was part of the deal of the transfer, uh, and that's still there today. And it looks after people who need more long-term care so yes I think in the long term um, the Alfred's been very responsive to our needs I I sit on some committees there and people with HIV really do get a say in the way the hospitals run so you know I I think in the long term I'd have to say it it was for the for the best because they weren't going to pour lots of resources into Fairfield I don't think just going back to the 80s and 90s, tell us about the treatment buyers clubs that existed. And I know some yeah. people had rooms full of treatments, all kinds of herbal yeah. treatments and weird and wonderful things. Well, people have to understand that there were no decent treatments at all uh, that uh, doctors could prescribe for, for HIV until, well, I'd argue that even not really until 1995, but some of the early ones like AZT really did dreadful damage to my body. It's it's highly debatable uh, whether they helped keep me alive or if, in fact, the dreadful wasting of my arms and legs and my muscles and uh, even the fat off my face and so forth, how, whether that was as much caused by AZT as the virus itself. But uh, it was a combination of both. It wasn't the answer. And uh, a lot of people wouldn't take it and it actually put them off HIV treatments for uh, some of the better ones that started coming along in the early 90s. They wouldn't take them because they saw what it did to people like me. You know, we were kind of like scarecrows. I don't mind, hate to say it, but it's true. But, you know, we looked, you know, sunken faces and, you know, skinny bodies. It was a wasting disease, really, and uh, it's a horrible time to remember back to, really. Absolutely. But, of course, it achieved so much social change and the epidemic has has changed so much. And, of course, this week we've had Survivor's Day, uh, which is a wonderful testament to people like you, David, who have have survived and done so much activism for the community that's delivered so much. Thank you, James. How would you describe the change that's happened? It's monumental. It's well, it's life changing. It's it's made a huge difference to uh, you know the the big loose groups. You know, like gay men. I'm not saying it's only gay men. We know the epidemic's changing. It's affecting different groups. 
now, but but certainly, you know, 70, 75% of infections are still with gay men. So it has, it has changed the dynamics in the gay community now to know that your virus is undetectable, meaning you can't pass the virus on if you are taking your treatments regularly and the virus is undetectable in your blood, which means it's not circulating in your blood. You still have virus hiding away in lymph glands and so forth, and we still need a cure. But it's quite quite a revolution to think that now I cannot pass that virus on to someone else. That is just the most amazing thing. And on top of that, we're all living uh, pretty much without AIDS. It's very unusual to get a person develop an AIDS-defining illness now because the treatments are so good, uh, they keep illness at bay in most people, you know, Occasionally you'll have someone who doesn't know they're HIV positive, which is why we always argue that people should test, you know, frequently. If they don't know they're positive and then their immune system becomes so weak because the T-cells are working away, doing their damage and they don't know it, then those people are likely, it could be more likely to develop AIDS. But, you know, even if you get it at the 11th hour, if you get what I'm saying, you can stop it. So really, there's no excuse these days for people not to, if they're you know, having any kind of risk behaviour, to get tested and uh, take treatments as soon as they can if they are positive. Because we know that this long is, 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 if you delay, you are doing damage to your body in terms of uh, reducing your T-cells, which are the marker of your immune system. So... You know, people these days have the tools to prevent HIV. There's a thing called PrEP that people can take now that means that if they have unprotected sex, then they won't get HIV either. It's very unusual for that for a person to catch it. I mean, some people talk about some people have managed to get HIV regardless, even though they take PrEP, but it's a very tiny percentage. So PrEP is really uh, an important thing to help people prevent it, but for people who have HIV, if they're on treatments, they too can prevent it from being passed on, but their health, you know, the people like me who were death's door, as you would know, James, you knew me then, were very sick and looked like, you know, we only had months in some cases to live, and when these new treatments come along in the... Um, mid 90s 96 you saw people you know they called it the lazarus syndrome people were coming back they came back their health was restored they put on weight uh you know and i'm still here <laughs> so what was that transition like going from uh, thinking i'm going to die to actually i'm going to live a bloody long time well james i have to be honest and other people have said this so i have to you know admit it i was a bit manic you know, my body was sort of like celebrating. It was like being on champagne the whole time. I felt uh, this incredible restoration in my myself. But psychologically, I kind of adapted to this low-level coping kind of thing. And as soon as I started to get more energy and... I, I actually was a bit manic. People used to have to say, David, slow down. And that's something that I saw happen in other people too. It was a, a kind of like a restoration that almost came too quickly. None of us expected it to be so complete. 
David, of course, many people living with HIV still experience enormous stigma and discrimination. And of course, you're one of the faces and voices of HIV Survival Day, which was yesterday. What would your key message be to people living with HIV who are feeling ashamed, isolated uh, and living with stigma? Yes, well, I think you'll be surprised if I'm talking to you as a HIV positive person now about how the majority of people now have some understanding that HIV is not as dangerous as it was. If you're living in, if you're visiting overseas countries and they haven't had education campaigns, maybe that'll be different and there would be parts of Australia where people have some backward views. But as a general rule in urban societies and so forth, you'll find people are accepting um, and with a bit of education, most people can be turned around. So if you're worried about sex partners, uh, there's plenty of information you can give a sex partner to, the, to prove that, you know, scientists have said, you know, we're not infectious. So you can have a relationship with a HIV negative person. You can uh, expect to have a, a, a normal lifespan. And so, you know, I... I would try and limit the amount of negative feelings you have by getting out there and um, mixing with, well, other positive people for starts. For starters, they'd be a great peer support for you. Join some of the peer support groups at Living Positive Victoria and the uh, Thorn Harbour Health have going. They will help you to sort of adjust to a diagnosis. Um, but also just provide ongoing support. And we do all need support of some kind. There's also psychological supports as counselling and uh, so forth. I, I honestly don't think these days a HIV positive person should uh, overthink the stigma. I think you can find supportive people around you who will help you to you know, minimise that, if not get rid of it altogether. David Minnerdew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on 3CR today. Thank you so much. You too, James. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Okay, bye. Bye. Still going strong, David Minnerdew there, a long-term survivor of HIV. It is 5 to 5. I am out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. But taking us out is Moby, everything that rises. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.